Welcome to Writer Types, the crime and mystery fiction podcast. My name is Eric Beatner, and this is S.W. Loudon. What do you have for the people this time, Steve? Hey, Eric. Uh, today on the show, we have Katrina McPherson, who teaches us how to insult people in Scottish. There's a really simple one, YouTube, as in cylinder. It just means there's nothing in there. Put it in the top, it'll come out the bottom. And author Tom Pitts finally realizes his dream of appearing on Writer Types. You know, there's a certain anticlimactic nature to when these milestones actually happen. And author Dave Zeltzerman shares his experience as a first-time guest on Writer Types. All this yelling and foot stomping and, you know, it's really quite an experience. All that plus a chat with the czar of noir and newly minted Turner Classic Movie host Eddie Muller, a visit from our book reviewers, The Malmans, and a story by Sarah M. Chen. But first, you know, Steve, I normally ask you if you've read any good books lately, but I know that you wrote a good book lately. Your next Tommy and Shana adventure, Crossed Bones, is out now. Congratulations. Thank you so much. This one was a, uh, a fun one to write. I kind of decided to go sort of off the deep end with the characters this time around. And pirates. Pirates and bikers. Let's not forget. And then also the pirates are impersonators and they're cocaine dealers. That, that goes without saying, really. <laughs> well, I mean, they say to write what you know, so I did. So this is the sequel to Crosswise, the first uh, Tommy and Shannon novella, and the action picks up immediately after the action in Crosswise. I'm realizing with the two series that I'm writing that that's kind of what I like to do. I like to pick up right where I left off from the last book. But with Tommy and Shana, I gave myself a little bit more free reign to kind of just let the characters take me where they're going to take me. And from what people are telling me, they took me to a pretty crazy place this time around. Well, I'm excited to read it uh, because I just got mine. For some reason, I was not on the advanced copy list, but we can discuss that later. I was very afraid of what your advanced reviews might be. <laughs> As you should be. <laughs> How about you, Eric? Have you read any good books recently? You know, I have. I finally got around to a book that has been on my radar for a long time, a book called The Hemingway Thief by Sean Harris. And I really dug this book. I, I would definitely call it a, a crime caper. Uh, it takes place down in Mexico with a, a delicious cast of ne'er-do-well characters. Uh, and it's all based around the myth of the lost suitcase of Ernest Hemingway that allegedly contained a lot of his early work. And if you remember, Steve, when we were in Chicago a little while back, we actually spoke to Sean Harris. Uh, we talked to Sean about a lot of things, starting with why he chose this myth of Hemingway's lost suitcase as the plot for his debut novel. I had been in Mexico for a bachelor party. So we're in this place, there's a lot of weird characters and everything. I was like, this is the greatest setting for a book. But I didn't have a plot for it. I had a great setting, but no plot. And then a while later, I was watching the movie Wonder Boys. And there's a throwaway line about the lost suitcase. And I didn't know anything about it. So I go on online, and I start reading about it. And I was like, this is really interesting. And then I start doing more research and more research. And I actually hate Hemingway. I hate him as a person. I'm not a fan of his writing. Wow. He's a terrible human being. <laughs> he really was. He was just such a terrible human being. And he's like that typical, like, well, he's a writer. And it's like, no, there's plenty of writers. I've met so many writers at all these conventions. None of them behave that way. And, they're, <laughs> you know, they're all good writers. They all know what they're doing. They love their families. They, you don't have to behave that way to, to be a good artist. I'm not a pro-alpha male guy. And I'll tell you, part of it is my dad was, was a cop. He was a Marine. He was a homicide detective. He was undercover in, in uh, narcotics in the 70s and always told us he loved us. 
always made sure that he was there for a birthday party. He was a softie. He, he was, but yeah. he was a tough guy. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess with him, well, you yeah. know, but, like, we were never afraid of him. We knew we were, like, he's still around. I don't know if there, like, was. But <laughs> that was my role model for masculinity. I guess the bottom line is I grew to hate Hemingway more as I, as I did the research. Wow. And, wow. Yeah. Well, so, Sean, I have a, actually have a copy of the book here. There it is. That I want you to sign for. I will sign it for And you. as you're doing that... Do you have a lot of pressure to come up with something clever when you sign a book? Do you, do you, how? Yes, I do. Okay. And I can tell you, the, the, this woman came up to me. It was the very first time I was signing. It was the very first person I've ever signed a book for. She walks up and she goes, I'm going to give this to my high school students. She goes, but can you write something in it that will inspire them to read the rest of their lives? And I was like, you're going to have to give me some time. No pressure. Yeah. Can you come back later? Do your shopping. Yeah. Come back later. Yeah, I, I, just, I already did that. It's called my book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just read the book. <laughs> I, so I couldn't. I, I don't even remember what I wrote. It was terrible. Yeah, I, I, Keep I, reading the rest yeah. of your lives. Keep, Love, yeah. Keep on keeping on, brother. <laughs> so, I, so I usually just do best, you know, mm-hmm. best. Sean Harris, and, you, you know, whatever works. Uh, if it's a family member, I'll put to my favorite uncle on my father's side. You, know, you, <laughs> you should do standards. that to strangers. <laughs> Sean, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we have a lot more with Sean that we're going to post to our Facebook page, which you can find easily. So go there and follow us and you get a lot of uh, exclusive content. But Steve, I also want to uh, read to you. I have the book here in my hand and I want to read to you the inscription that he wrote. Uh, he wrote, to Eric, my favorite uncle, best Sean Harris. So I, I was really impressed with that, that he followed through. <laughs> well, for what it's worth, Eric, you're my favorite uncle, too. You know, Eric, it's obvious that uh, we here at Writer Types really love books, but we also love movies, and especially movies adapted from books. Well, one of my favorite crime writers is Dave Zeltzerman, and one of my favorite novels of his is Small Crimes, which I think was the, the first one of his that I read. And there's a brand new film adaptation of Small Crimes that just went live on Netflix. And Steve and I recommend it because we both thought it was excellent. So we talked to Dave about the transition from novel into film. What's it like to see your characters on the screen after so long of them living in your head? You know, it's quite an experience. Um, When the filming was being done in Montreal, uh, my wife and I went up for a day. When we showed up on set while they were blocking out the first scene, and all of a sudden we hear all this yelling and foot stomping and, you know, it's really quite an experience, you know, just hearing my book come alive. It's got to have been quite a relief to know, oh, whew, they did it right. Eric, you read the book, so you know there are quite a lot of changes between the uh, movie and the book, but still feels like the book. And Nikolai still feels very much like Joe Denton. So, yeah, I think they did a really nice job. I think it's a smart film. In a way, it's kind of a throwback to the 70s films where, you know, it doesn't hold your hand. It expects the audience to think a little bit. Not everything is laid out. I think Evan did a really nice job with it. I think, and the actors were great. The actor, all the actors, uh, I think, nailed their parts. Yeah, uh, casting is so key in adapting a, a novel, and I think that they really nailed it. I mean, Small Crimes, the book, that has long been on my list of sort of the great contemporary neo-noir novels. I think I've handed sort of dog-eared used copies of that novel to, to three or four people over the years and say, oh my God, you got to read this. Is adapting it to film, is that something that's ever in your mind as you were writing that or writing any of your other books? Not really. Um, 
you know, when I originally wrote it, I, I wrote this back in like 2003. And when I was imagining uh, Joe, I was thinking of Bruce Willis with hair. <laughs> At that point, you know, all I wanted to do was get a book published. Um, movies were like the furthest thing from my mind. So, so you decided that one of the darkest books I've ever read was the way to go. Good, good choice, Dave. <laughs> I mean, Small Crimes is still, even though it's dark, it's still a very moral book. You know, at the yeah. center of it, you know, Joe is basically being punished for not doing the, the right thing. You know, I mean, the right thing would be very costly for him, you know, admitting, you know, his crimes, but pretty significant ramifications and eventually everything catches up to Joe. Classic noir. I love it. Yep. So publishing moves slow, but the film industry can move even slower. Was it worth the wait for you to see small crimes come to life the way it did? Yeah, small crimes actually happened pretty quickly. I optioned that about three years ago. And, you know, when I was talking to the film company about it, we weren't even talking about small crimes. We were talking about another book, Caretake of Lawn Field. And then when they gave me the offer, they threw in small crimes, you know, totally took me off guard. So that one was interesting because I thought it had the smallest chance of any of my movies of getting made, but it's the first one out. So speaking of small crimes, what would you suggest for a budding criminal to start with if they wanted to get into a life of crime? You know, I'm asking for a friend, not, not that Steve and I are planning anything, but... I'm the friend he's asking for. <laughs> well, you know, all, all, of my, all of my criminals end up in bad shape, so I don't think I'm the one to ask advice from. So you're definitely uh, of the mind that crime does not pay. Uh, so far, none of my characters have gone away with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would definitely say that Small Crimes is a cautionary tale for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so no life of crime for us in our future, I guess. It's funny. The thing that I took away from that interview that was most interesting is how quickly that film got made. Oh, if only it would happen to us. They're making a film about us? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Writer types, the movie. <laughs> Ryan Gosling is playing me. Paul Giamatti is playing you. That's fair. That's fair. We could do worse. All right. As long as we're on the subject of movies, we also spoke with the president and founder of the Film Noir Foundation, the man they call the czar of noir and the new host of his own show on Turner Classic Movies called Noir Alley, Mr. Eddie Muller. Eddie is also an accomplished novelist of the boxing noir novels, The Distance and Shadow Boxer, as well as several indispensable nonfiction books on film noir. So first off, congratulations on Noir Alley, your new Turner Classic Movie show. We're very excited about that. That's what I was doing before this. I was actually writing scripts for the next batch of introductions I'm doing. How far in advance do you uh, record that stuff? We record uh, like 20 at a time. And I haven't been paying attention that close. Does that mean 20 different suits? <laughs> Eric, you've cut right to the chase. You're, <laughs> you're a good reporter because like, this is the trickiest part of doing this stuff is that the wardrobe actually drives everything because you can't be changing your clothes all the time. So, <laughs> so it's like Eddie, wear this suit will change out the tie and the pocket square, but you're going to jump like four weeks ahead and then seven weeks ahead so that when they air, you're not wearing the same clothes. Constructively, uh -huh. You know, what is it about noir films that, really speak to you louder than any other genre in classic film? Philosophically, it's in sync with my, my view of the world, I suppose. <laughs> you know, I am a cynic and a skeptic, 
And these films have always spoken to me. You know, they, they informed my sensibility when I was a kid. You know, some people will respond to musicals. Some people want movies that make them escape, comedies and such. But I've always liked crime movies. I, I always had an interest in crime fiction. I can return to these films and the era and the personalities that made the films. And I sort of never get tired of it. To me, that's kind of fascinating. So I'm not exactly a film expert like the two of you, much to Eric's consternation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what films do you think a relative newbie like me should start with in order to appreciate noir? The two films that I immediately direct people towards are uh, Double Indemnity and Out of the Past. I think those are the two movies that tick off every box. The tone, the look of the films, the, the feel of noir, I think if somebody watches out of the past, they're gonna understand what it is. Oh yeah, I, I get it, you know? The the structure of that film, how it's a backtracking story, and it's like, this is the tale of how my life went totally off the rails, you know? Should I be uh, proud that I'm batting 500? I've seen one of those. Oh, good for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which one have you seen? Double Indemnity. Okay. I'm thrilled. You still have Out of the Past to look forward to. And on June 4th, that will be uh, screened on Noir Alley. And I'm very excited about showing it. We're going to have a special guest with that one, too, that'll be kind of interesting. Is, is the special guest me? <laughs> it was supposed to be a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so you've long been a champion of the writers who inspired film noir. Who do you think got the best treatment by Hollywood for their novels? Hmm. Wow, that's a, that's a really good question. Okay, careful on this guy. I, I have my own opinions on this, and I'm going to see if you're right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, James M. Cain, they did right by him with Double Indemnity and Mildred Pierce, but I don't think they did right with The Postman Always Rings Twice, because I really don't think that's a good adaptation of that book, right? Really? Uh, I don't think they ever totally got Raymond Chandler. Probably W.R. Burnett, High Sierra and the Asphalt Jungle. And some of those movies in the 30s, like Dark Hazard and Little Caesar, stuff like that. I think, I think he got very good adaptations of his books. Right. Well, Eddie, I'm going to stop you there and go to our judge. Eric, how do you do? Uh, my pick would actually be William P. McGivern. Oh. I think McGivern had such a, a great batting average with the big heat. Uh, Shield for Murder has always been one that I think is, has been kind of underrated, but that's one of those films and books that I always hold up as kind of the prime example of that post-war malaise sort of story, because you've got this guy who turns to murder and, and robbery and just descends into his own personal hell, but he's not after another guy's wife. He's not after a huge payday. All he wants is a tract house in the suburbs with a sunken living room. <laughs> it's just That's right. odds against tomorrow. Fantastic. Exactly. Rogue cop, which is kind of a lost film. An excellent novel. So Eric, here's the deal. I'm going to, I'm going to give you this round. You're absolutely right. William McGivern is probably the crime writer who was treated best by Hollywood. A uh, really, really good underrated writer. So, Eddie, I'm sitting here holding your Billy Nichols novels, and uh, the question on the tip of my tongue is, are we ever going to see another novel from you? 
The answer is yes. Oh, uh, when I get done writing these next round of introductions for Noir Alley, I will then turn to the third Billy Nichols novel, which is about halfway done. Billy Nichols is hired by a Hollywood director to act as a script consultant on a boxing film. And oh. so he ends up in Hollywood in the early 50s, navigating all this craziness intersection between boxing and Hollywood and the gangsters and all this stuff. So that, that's what's happening in book number three. You know, there were a lot of great recommendations there for things for me to watch. Maybe it's time to hear some recommendations about what to read next. Well, for that, we go to our spouses in crime, the Malmans, all the way from sunny Minnesota. Dan and Kate, welcome again. Uh, what do you have for us? Today, I brought something from the future. Ooh. So I was able to get a hold of a copy of The Dark Net by Benjamin Percy. This is on its way out in August. And Ben Percy uh, came to my attention uh, through comics. So he writes the monthly Green Arrow series. And then he's also moved to Minnesota not too long ago. So able to meet him at a signing. Just a really neat, down-to-earth guy. With the dark net, he kind of uh, takes a couple of genres. Techno-thriller mixed in with some supernatural horror, end-of-the-world type recipe. So it's a fast-moving, kind of an ensemble thriller with a ton of world-building and a lot of world-ending. He really presses all the good buttons. You know, a likable cast, a dark, encroaching evil. The neat thing is that it basically takes our fears from a technological society and plugs it in with what if all of those evils, demons from hell or everything, are infiltrating the Internet. It's super fun, and I can't wait till this hits a shelf so more people can discover it. Do you think he decided to write about the end of the world after moving to Minnesota? Good question. <laughs> he lives in southern Minnesota, and the winters get really bad there. So I think there's some of that cabin fever, isolated space madness. So, Kate, are you uh, also looking to the future for us? No, actually, well, I'm actually looking at a book that just came out in April. It's Dangerous Ends by Alex Segura, and it's the third book in his Pete Fernandez series. And he and his sometimes PI partner, Kathy Bentley, are hired to write a book about a murderer from Miami, that his family is trying to get him exonerated, that they're trying to get one more last trial. So they're hoping that maybe bringing in the PIs will help uncover some new piece of evidence. But in the process, they find that somehow the guy that they're writing about has ties to a decades-old gang that has ties to Fidel Castro and they start uncovering things that maybe shouldn't have been uncovered. Like I said, this is Alex Segura's third novel and it's really good. You can tell that he as an author is really beginning to kind of come into his own and kind of find his voice. And I think as Alex is getting more confident as an author, his main character Pete is getting much more confident as a character. And I think that that's really coming through from Alex's writing. So I think right. as the two of them are getting more confident in finding their own together. Remember a few episodes ago when the Malmans talked about novellas and one of the books they recommended was Cleaning Up Finn by Sarah M. Chen? Of course I remember. And you and I both loved that book as well. Cleaning Up Finn was just the winner of an independent publishing award, the Ippy. And Sarah is with us this time with a short story from the Shotgun Honey Archives. 
Shotgun Honey is your go-to choice for crime fiction under 700 words. So to get that quick fix, go to shotgunhoney.com and browse the archives. And here's Sarah with her story, A High Ridge Homecoming. I see you walk into the bar, Robbie, and I get that fiery rush in the pit of my stomach. I giggle like I'm in high school. You tell me after three years, I look the same. You call me Mandykins and say I still got them dimples. Well, of course I do. I want to say that, but I don't. Instead, I smile and pour you a schlafly. I ask what brings you back to High Ridge. I bet it's to see me, I joke. But deep down, I mean it. I think you know I mean it, too, by the way you look at me. But you say you're back home to see your mama. You call her and call her, but she's not answering, and so you come out to see her, and she's not around. Nobody's seen her, neither. You ask if I've seen your mama. I say no, and then I ask if you want to go to Steger Lake like we used to. Remember we used to skinny dip in Steger Lake? You nod and say, yeah, you remember. But then you look around the bar, and I see you staring at those skanks with the big tits. Those are dumb sluts, Robbie. Nobody wants to bring them home to their mama. But Robbie, you can bring me home to your mama. Oh wait, you did that already. And the dumb bitch thought I wasn't good enough for her precious son. Thought I was too trashy with a junkie daddy. And no, she didn't say nothing like that, but I could tell. I could tell that bitch didn't like me none because of my daddy. If my daddy were gone, then I'd be good enough for you, Robbie. And your mama would say I was a good girl. And she'd tell you to marry me. And you'd listen to her, because you always listen to her. That really stuck in my gizzard, Robbie, how much you listened to that bitch. But then my daddy OD'd and drowned. Remember, Robbie? They found him in Steger Lake, and I cried and cried. You were so sweet to me. You didn't leave my side for three days. I remember, Robbie. It was the best three days of my life. But then you left for Cali. Left me here to sling drinks and sit home alone in my empty trailer. That shit ain't right. So I had to get you back here, Robbie. Don't you see? Once you saw me again, you'd remember all the fun we had. And you'd say I was beautiful. And you'd touch my dimples and touch me everywhere. Just like you used to in high school. I just needed to get you back out here. It's been a week now since you come back, and you're not acting the way you're supposed to. You're not being the Robbie I love. You're being a real asshole, you know that? You've barely said two words to me. Just ordering Schlafly's is all you're doing. Okay, maybe it's because you found out your mama's dead. Well, we all found out, didn't we? The sheriff hauled her bloated body out of Steger Lake yesterday, and the whole town's been talking about nothing else. Two drownings in three years. A lot for a small town. I get that it's hard for you. You're upset, and you need time to mourn and all that shit. But I've been patient and understanding for a few days now. I invite you over, and you mumble some dumb excuse. You blow me off like I smell or something. It's time to get over it, Robbie. We can be together now. But instead, you talk about going back to Cali. You can't stand being here in High Ridge with memories of your mama. Shit, you can't even stay in her house. You gotta rent a room at the Super 8. I know, because I see you stumble there every night after closing. Room 6. No invite for me to come along, neither. That really sticks in my gizzard, Robbie. For more crime fiction in under 700 words, visit ShotgunHoney.com and listen in here every episode for a new story. We're joined now by author Tom Pitts, who adds American Static to a list of books that include Hustle and Piggyback. 
Tom's a recovering musician who turned to writing gritty crime stories, and I got an early look at American Static, and trust me, it's a wild ride. Now, in the past, I know that you've drawn a lot from your own life experience, and you've sort of incorporated a lot of that into your stories, but please tell me that nothing in American Static is true and real. It's all true and real. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, after Hustle, I, I drew on a lot of personal experience, at least with the addiction side of things. And that sort of gives, I hope, that book a special tone. But you can't do that forever else I'd be writing the same book again. So I, I decided to, to sort of push further. So, yes, not true. Fiction. We'll file this one under fiction. Good. <laughs> you wrote a book called American Ecstatic, but you're Canadian. What? I know. He's outrageous. <laughs> right. How dare you, sir? Can you explain the title, American Static? For me, American Static refers to that undercurrent in America that is violent, uh, gun-driven, the underbelly, that, that constant buzz, our gun culture, our, our, our violent uh, culture, and, and, and that's what the American Static refers to, in my brain at least. Wow, deep. Well, and also I got shot down in my original title, which was California Libertine. Ah, which I, I thought I had a nice ring to it, but ultimately uh, didn't fit the book as well. Well, I picture a libertine, and I, I I just picture like Johnny Depp lounging on a on a chaise. I think that's why I got shot down. <laughs> I didn't want to give people the wrong impression. Is, is that not what the book's about? <laughs> well, Johnny Depp is in it, but you have to read to the end to find him. <laughs> you know, one of the things I think's notable about the fiction of yours that I've read, and I think I've read all of it at this point, including the stuff that hasn't come out. Um, You're the only guy on the planet. Yeah. There were all those editors who turned down American Static, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a long list. <laughs> that's a long list. <laughs> and a lot of your writing is actually set in Northern California. Why is Northern California the right location for the crime fiction that you write? I mean, it's it's that terrible truth of uh, uh, well, it's not right, but you know, otherwise uh, I, I would be uh, in prison. But you know, <laughs> the, the it's, I, I've lived in Northern California in San Francisco since 1984. If I could travel a little more, if I could ever, you know, get to Kansas or Paris, I might be able to write, you know, a, a thriller out there. But mostly I, I'm rooted here. That's why it's all, you know, Sacramento and, and San Francisco and Oakland. And, and they're all places where I've had personal experience. Because I think as a writer, you know, if a, a scene or a, a story happens in an apartment or a place, in my brain, it's a place I've been. That's why I use uh, uh, places that I know. Because I'm a big guy. I'm, you know, when I read books, I'll Google Map stuff. You know, it's, he's on what street? And I'll, you know, if I'm really in, just for kicks and just sort of get a feel. So I like to adhere to that in my own fiction, like making sure that they're on a one-way street. It's really a one-way street in real life. You've written a lot about drugs in, in your writing, and you just take a decidedly unromantic view of, of that drug culture and lifestyle. I think it's just important to stay true to how characters really are and i was thinking about that movie leaving las vegas the other day how i wanted to visit it again because it, it's it's something that captured addiction in that case alcohol in a very sort of real way i'm very big on being consistent i saw some movie the other day where they introduced the main character as a drug addict and aside from the first scene where he was shooting up you know he was never sick he was never scraping for drugs he was never stealing money out of anybody's wallet it just went on with the plot of the movie and that kind of drives me crazy and also Drugs are what drives most crime. I think that's something that is missed in a lot of crime and storytelling is, is what drives these, what puts these people in a desperate situation in the first place. And it's usually a, a lifestyle of, of drugs. 
speaking of drugs, we're all musicians. So what's the difference between writing a song and writing a book? I think songs, you're really focused on wordplay and familiar kind of phrasing that catches people. And stories, you're trying to do the opposite, which is, you know, break new ground and do something original and not, I mean, to the point where you don't even want to repeat words, whereas songs are, you want to repeat that chorus to beat into someone's head. So there's my uh, mechanical breakdown of the difference, other than, you know, the obvious difference. So American Static comes out next month. We're all very excited, and I'm sure you're proud and excited yourself. So what are you going to do to celebrate the release of a new novel? You know, there's a certain anticlimactic nature to when these milestones actually happen. Cheryl and I have had a bottle of champagne in the refrigerator for, for years at this point, waiting for the most special occasion to, to pop it. And guess what? It's still there because, you know, it, it, these little things come in life, and, and you're already – wrapped up in the next project, you're already working on the next thing, you're already worried about the, the next problem, rent. So I, I, I sometimes forget to stop and smell the roses as it were, to celebrate my own awesomeness. <laughs> you should toast your success. We're all proud of you here. Well, I toast myself uh, just about nightly, just not to my success. <laughs> <laughs> Well, from Northern California out to, to the flats of Texas, Steve, uh, where you were just in Austin, is that right? Yeah, I was lucky enough to spend some time at the fantastic independent bookstore Book People in Austin, Texas with Scott Montgomery, who runs their mystery section, and two local writers who are Mike McCrary and Gabino Iglesias. Great guys. And great writers. And we got a chance to ask them a few questions about why Austin is such a great place to write crime fiction. I'm Scott Montgomery. I'm the crime fiction coordinator for Mystery People, the uh, mystery bookstore within Book People, Texas' largest independent, and also have had several short stories online and such uh, easings as uh, The Big Adios and Shotgun Honey. What makes Austin a great place to write crime fiction? Particularly right now, it's fantastic because it's a city that's kind of an upheaval. It was kind of known as the kind of laid-back hippie place. Uh, that was if you were broke, you could still have a good time and have a great living. Now we're seeing a lot of different changes as far as with a tech boom of rich and poor, it becoming more of a city of the rich people and the people who work for them. That said, there's still a lot of really great little pockets and areas. Uh, two things that are great about it is you can draw from so many things. There's the politics, us being the capital in Texas, uh, academics, the music scene, of course. What I think is really cool about it is that it still seems like it's a safe city, like you can walk at night, but then that leaves your characters kind of off their footing, or it leaves a lot of darkness that's kind of got that blue velvet vibe of, here's this nice area, but then underneath there's this darkness you can kind of tap into. Mike McCrary, author of Remo Went Rogue and Genuinely Dangerous. I like Austin because it's an untapped resource. Everybody knows about New York, everybody knows about L.A., everybody knows about Boston to a certain degree. You can use Austin as a character and go wherever you want to go because people don't have a really deep preconceived notion of what Austin is. They know a little bit about music, a little bit about tech, but you can throw it all in there because it's that and so much more. The story I usually tell is I'm walking down MLK Boulevard, got the University of Texas to my left. There are girls handing out gigantic dildos as a protest make it two steps, I find a soiled condom on the street. I don't know what you do with that as an author, but somewhere there is gold, literary gold, and the tacos are fantastic. 
I'm Gavino Iglesias. I'm the author of Zero Saints, and uh, this is a, this is the town where I write, and it's a fantastic town to write um, crime noir and mystery because it's uh, it's funky, it's weird, it's full of people from other places. So we got all kinds of crime. It's clean, but it's also gritty. Uh, we got a lot of rich people and a lot of uh, poor people and a lot of hustlers trying to make it. Probably the thing that I like best about writing about Austin is uh, it's kind of far from the uh, from the border, but it's a border town, meaning that I can get up uh, off myself and walk to the HEB by my house and buy a Santa Muerte candle. Uh, it's bilingual, even though a lot of people don't want to accept it. Uh, it's wonderfully diverse, so there's flavor to it. There's a weirdness in the streets that uh, comes from having people from all over the world and also being sort of a border town, and I just love that because it brings in uh, a lot of darkness from a lot of places, a lot of suffering, a lot of uh, hustling, and that's what I write about. Well, up next, we have a very special guest this time, Steve, and you wouldn't know it from her accent, but she lives right here in California, up north near Tom. It will become clear very soon that Katrina McPherson was born in Scotland, but moved to Northern California in 2010. Her lighthearted historical series starring society girl Dandy Gilver is now 11 books strong and recently won both the Lefty Award and the Agatha Award for Best Historical Mystery. And her darker standalone novels include The Day She Died, Quiet Neighbors, Come to Harm, and many more. I'd like to start by saying congrats on winning the Agatha Award for Best Historical Novel for Reek of Red Herrings. Well done. Thank you. Yes, I'm very chuffed. I want to know what it's like in your head, because you seem to have sort of these two competing sides of your writerly brain, because you've got the the Dandy Gilver novels and, and that are a, a little more prim and proper, a little more buttoned up, but then you've got these standalones that are pretty dark and 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 more intense what's it like inside your brain it's not dandy dan dandy gilver is this very uh, posh you know stoic i'm a noted overreactor <laughs> not like her at all uh, so she is my love of books you know the golden age of british fiction british detective fiction that i grew up on so that's me uh, that's me as a fangirl none of that is for real but, but I thankfully don't have either the lives of these women where we meet some poor woman on the worst day of her life and follow her downhill from there. Yeah, no, that would, in the standard yeah, that would be terrible. Yeah, that would, that would be terrible. Overreacting, you know, I've found the one job that that's good for, to, you know, to freak out and think, oh my God, what if this happens? What if that happens? Useful. The origin of those stories comes from your own sort of paranoid thinking a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Just really bad daydreaming. So how? what are all the many ways that life could go horrifically wrong at any point? <laughs> You've been a California girl for a while now. Do you think you'll ever stop writing about Scotland? Oh, I, I couldn't write an American voice. I couldn't write an American novel. But I can write about America. Oh, boy, can I? So I'm, I'm practicing all the different ways to say, that's what the character thinks. <laughs> that's not what I think. The Scottish are well known for their creative and rather plentiful supply of insults, right? Yes. 
So would you teach Steve and I a few of your favorites? My mind immediately goes filthy, but you can't do this. I'm, so I'm a linguist by training, right? I was a professor of linguistics before I was a full-time writer. So I'm really interested in the different, like the same words in different languages. And the C word, which I'm not going to say, is much more nasty in American than it is. It's right. taboo. It's a strong swear word, but it's not nasty. It's kind of affectionate. It's affectionate? Yeah, and we'll call each other that instead of, Oh, here's another word I can't see with my accent. Dude, and I know it sounds stupid. <laughs> You'll use the C word instead as a term of affection. I told you, Eric. That's why I call you that all the time. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Scottish insult. There's a really simple one. YouTube. YouTube, as in cylinder, huh. right? And it's short, like YouTube. It just means there's nothing in there. Put it in the top, it'll come out the bottom. And it's just, it's a very kind of zen <laughs> insult. I like numpty. Numpty's a nice no. one. Wow. Numpty. No. I like, and this is only for women. Fagash lil. I love that. <laughs> I don't even know. Fagash lil. Yeah, I would use that. All right. Well, that, now we're armed with a lot of uh, great insults to use for <laughs> friends and loved ones, apparently. I'm reading your excellent standalone novel, Quiet Neighbors, right now. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, how much fun was it for you to set a story in the oldest bookshop in a town full of bookshops? It was just heaven. So the town is real, Wigton. It's Scotland's book town. And the bookshop is real as well, kind of. Oh, but it was wonderful. So it was, a way, it was kind of a love letter to all my favourite books. And I did find, my husband and I did find uh, someone's books from their house clearance, you know, from their estate into a horse trailer in a junkyard. So we saved them. So it was just wonderful to write that bookshop. And it's a real, it really splits an audience. If, ever, if I've been talking about the book and I've said, okay, so let's have a show of hands. If you found a bookstore where the books were crumbling and they were just shoved into a room in carrier bags and they were moldy and there were mice making nests in them and nothing had been done for decades, would you want the job of clearing that out? And I, absolutely. And some people like, oh, yeah, let me at it. Yeah. Whoa, what are you talking about? I would run. That's gross. <laughs> but I'd love to do that. I'm just curious, like, you, you seem to have adjusted to life in the States, life in California quite well. What do you think if someone like Steve and I, Southern California boys, how would we adjust if we picked up and moved to Scotland? <laughs> yeah, this is definitely the way to do it. Because I think... Because so many people in California aren't from California, they're very open to making friends. The insane friendliness of California, you wouldn't get that in Scotland where we don't talk to each other. I mean, people in public just don't talk to each other. You know, like on a plane, you know, you've got to spend six hours with this person who might be the worst human being you've ever encountered in your life. So you start with what you know you can handle, which is nothing. So that's just life all over the place in Scotland until everyone gets drunk. So you're okay after about six o'clock in the evening. That's the good news. Well, another great show, Steve. What have we learned this time? Well, David Zeltzerman taught us that crime doesn't pay. And Eddie Muller taught us that it's all about the wardrobe. And Katrina McPherson taught us that the C word is okay in polite company between two men. 
Well, that does it for this episode. We'd like to thank all of our guests and contributors for joining us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. You can find out more about Steve's books, including Crosswise and Crossbones, at swloudon.com. And you can find out about Eric's books, including several upcoming novels, at ericbeatner.com. Join us next time on Writer Types. Thanks for listening. 